We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. E. This is the Resilient Schools Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I am the creator, Jethro Jones. In this podcast, we help schools become resilient, which means that they are able to adapt and overcome any situation that presents itself. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Resilient Schools. Today, I am excited to have on the podcast Katie Perez, another guest from SDAC. Uh, she's uh, doing a lot over there, SDAC, project-based learning, trauma, resilience, school redesign, four disciplines of execution, elementary generalist, keynoter, facilitator, coach, mentor. A large part of her work at SDAC focuses on supporting educators as they become trauma-informed. Katie's been researching and speaking about the science of hope since 2007. She says, hope guides me in all endeavors. In both my personal and professional life, I see opportunities to share and spread hope with others so that they too may develop pathways to see great possibilities in their lives. I believe in the power of engaged educators to build significant relationships with young people to encourage, inspire, and build great lives. Her work has led to a partnership with Jim Sporleader to build a curriculum guide to support school faculties in their journey to becoming trauma-informed. We're going to talk about that, building resilient neuroresilience in just a little bit. But Katie's true passion in education is in helping teachers reignite their own passion for teaching and learning. As a facilitator and coach, Katie customizes professional learning to target the specific goals and needs of each educator or audience. She believes that the key to unlocking full potential in our education system relies on the hope, well-being, and engagement of our educators and students. Katie, welcome to Resilient Schools. So grateful to have you here. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. This conversation we're going to have, we're going to go in a lot of different directions. What is your big takeaway that you're excited for people to hear us talk about today? I think the biggest piece is just the idea that when we teach other people about what's happening to their brain, when we can normalize and validate experiences of um, any kind, any level of stress, um, that we can build relationships with one another. And in that space, we can all grow and learn. 
and mm -hmm. become humans. Yeah, I think that that's great. I think the thing for me that uh, that I appreciate is when you said you can't have two amygdalas talking to each other. And we talk about uh, co-regulation, how to get uh, back into a good place where you can actually deal with the things that are going on. So um, looking forward to this conversation uh, with Katie, and we will get to that in just a moment. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools. So I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com BE for a demo. That's IXL.com BE. So Katie, tell us about the what neuroresilience means. And we're so, going to turn off our videos also, so our internet's better. So I forgot about that. So neuroresilience is the idea that um, we don't know a lot about the way the brain works. And what we have learned about the way the brain works is really exploding just in the past couple of decades. And so what I found is as I go into schools and I'm supporting teachers, to help students co-regulate, we don't have language to talk to kids about what's happening in their brains and in their bodies during dysregulation. So I went and I tried to find all of the research that I could uh, from people like Dan Segal and uh, oh gosh, I, uh, Jennifer Sweeten, uh, lots of people who had studied different centers of the brain and how they respond to stress and trauma. And I took all of that and I tried to boil it down so that it was in a way that we could hand it to kindergarten through 12th grade students to say, this is what's happening inside your brain. And then take it another step further to say, and it's normal to act this way when you're feeling stressed. From there, you can build skills that will help you develop resilience so that whenever you are feeling stressed, you can come at those forces in your life and overcome the things that are in your way, knowing that your response is normal. And yet you can always grow a little bit further. So that's kind of the idea of neuroresilience, taking that science and combining it with growth so that we can help kids understand what's happening to them. Yeah. And when you and I were, were kids, uh, don't mean to age anybody here, but when you and I were kids, uh, the, the term don't be a baby quit crying about it was typically how we dealt with that kind of stuff. And so what's, what's the language that we use now and what are, what are some uh, pieces of advice that you would give uh, adults working with kids about how to, how to have these conversations? So my favorite is that we have to kind of name to tame, right? We, we've heard that phrase a lot from some of our favorites and 
the idea of name to tame is that with kids, they don't always have the words to express what they're feeling. And if they do, we've given them so many that it's hard for them to boil it down into really clear understandings of how they're feeling. So I prefer to just use mad, sad, glad, or afraid. And realistically, if a kid's dysregulated, I just use mad, sad, and afraid. And so when I sit down with a child, I might say, hey, things aren't going super well for you right now. I can see that you're feeling some kind of way. Is that mad, sad, glad, or afraid? And they'll usually tell me one of those three. And I'll say, thanks. So what's that mostly about for you? And then they'll tell me, I'm really mad because my teacher's not listening to me and I don't understand the assignment. And then I just say something like, oof, that makes a lot of sense. If I don't understand something, I get really frustrated and mad too. Do you know why that's happening? And then from there, I can go into just a little bit about what's going on in their brain. And what I see when I do that is just that little conversation of helping them name the emotion and then validating and normalizing what they're experiencing, I can step into co-regulation much faster. Yeah, and for those who aren't aware, tell us what co-regulation is. Yeah, co-regulation is the idea that self-regulation is kind of a load of bull. Um, nobody self-regulates. If you really think about the way you calm down when you're feeling some kind of way, it's always through connection. So we can think about a little tiny baby who needs to be co-regulated by rocking, uh, the soothing sound of a mother's voice, or a little bit of those soothing rhythmic pats that we give a baby on their, on their back. And that's co-regulation at infant level. And then as we grow up, it looks like sitting on your mom's lap or, or sitting next to a teacher. It looks like holding hands. As an adult, co-regulation looks like calling your best friend when you're in a really bad mood. So we always regulate through connection. Self-regulation is actually, in my opinion, almost a defense system when we don't have the relationships that are supportive to help us through stressful times. Mm, that is really fascinating um, because I've been in a, in a uh, training program for the last six weeks about, and I'm, 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 I've got six months in front of me uh, of this. And one of the big big tenets about it is that yes, connection is important, but, oh, this is so interesting to me. So connection is important, but you also have to be able to control yourself and know when you need that so that you can reach out to find that connection. So one of the things that we talk about in this, in this training is that if you are in a disagreement with somebody, one of the things that you have to recognize is that um, even if they seem like they have just the complete wrong idea, 10% of something that they say is correct. So in this situation, I'm listening to you talk about co-regulation and saying that self-regulation is baloney. And I've just spent the last six weeks self learning how to self-regulate better. And, and so now I have to say, okay, what is the 10% that is right with what you're talking about? And then we can connect over that 10%. So, so the way that I just did that, and I'm just, 
I'm thinking out loud here intentionally as a way to help me learn better, but also to help help our listeners learn as well. I have to look at what you're saying and say, what's the 10% that's right? And the 10% that's right is that it does help when we when we have other people there with us. And if we are in a disagreement or confrontation, then connecting with them is is a pathway out of that. Uh, but it's not easy and it's very difficult. And what you're saying is we need to go connect uh, with other people. Am I reading that right, Katie? Yes, yes. The critical piece is that you're connecting with other regulated people, right? So two dysregulated people, we can't have two amygdalas talking to each other. Okay, two limbic systems talking to each other, if they are flooded with stress, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. But if I am in a space where um, I just had a really rough conversation, I'm going to say I had a really rough conversation with a colleague, and I need to process that. Now, there are self, there are self-regulation strategies that can work, but most of the time, what we're looking for is, is or not... It, let me see how I want to say this. The nervous system can regulate itself if it has strategies. Okay. And so building those strategies takes a long time. So you're saying you've spent some time focusing on how can you learn to self-regulate better? You're focusing on building those strategies within your own nervous system. However, when we're in connection with another regulated person, it speeds up the process because our bodies are going to try to match the energy level of the other person. And so if I'm sitting with a safe, stable, supportive human, when I'm dysregulated, then everything within my body will try to regulate within theirs. So my heart rate will calm down. My brain will calm down. My cortisol will come down. My oxytocin will come up. All of those things will start to happen in tandem as I'm sitting with that other person. So self-regulation can happen and it does happen, but for little kids, especially, we have to show them and model for them what it looks like and feels like to be regulated. So many of our kids never hit a regulation baseline. They're always amped. So what's, what's really fascinating to me is hearing you talk about that and thinking about this, this training that I'm going through and what that, what that looks like for me. And, um, and really the the training is about uh, developing new neural pathways to enable yourself to be successful in regulating yourself when you're feeling stressed and yeah. um and so the way that that we talk about it is that negative emotions are are signs and are are like jedi masters that say okay. that give you an opportunity to train and get better and improve and what I think is really fascinating about this idea is that you can take these negative things that are happening that when you're dysregulated, you can see that as a sign that it's time for me to to start working and getting better. And, and I like that idea because I think that it empowers us to say, just because something bad has happened or is happening to me doesn't mean that I have to be at the whim of that thing. I can still choose myself how to react. And especially in dealing with kids, that's a really difficult thing for them to do. When I was at an uh, assistant principal in elementary school, I carried a bouncy ball around with me all the time because the I found the fastest way to 
get kids to co-regulate with me was to bounce a ball with them back and forth. And they had to pay so much attention to catching this little bouncy ball that they couldn't continue paying as much attention to whatever the thing is that they were uh, that they were upset about or bothered by. And that helped them get into a regulated state much faster. How, how do those kinds of um, that was a connection? Sure. But there was also uh, something else that helped them calm down faster. What would you, what would the research say about that, Katie? So that's using that rhythmic repeated action, right? So just the idea of the bouncy ball, my, my mind goes to trauma informed balladistics, right? Um, I have a really great friend named Megan Baldwin who does an amazing job of bringing trauma-informed all of us six into schools. And she talks so much about that re- repeated rhythmic activity, but it is done, right? We're looking at each other. You're face-to-face. You're, uh, you're making eye contact. You're bouncing this ball back and forth. So there's your connection piece. Then you have the part that's calming the nervous system. In addition to the eye contact is the play and the rhythm. And then you're able to get into a space where we're out of the brainstem and we're back up into the limbic system where we can actually start having some conversations, priming us to get back into the prefrontal cortex to um, regulate, right? To get back to where we can have maybe a consequence conversation, a problem solving conversation, um, whatever it, whatever the situation needs to have. What I love what you said when you were talking was you said something about our emotions being signs. And so what I believe is that mad, going back to those four core, mad, sad, glad, afraid, I don't think any of them are negative. They're all just signs that something is off. So mad is a sign that something's unjust and I need to do something within my environment. Something needs to change here. Um, sad is I'm grieving some kind of loss and that can be really big, right? We tend to think the word grieve means really big things, but it can be little too. Um, and then afraid, I'm just worried something bad might happen. And glad is not happy. Glad is just my needs are met right now. Things are okay. I'm kind of in a status quo place. I don't have any concerns or worries. And what I like to help people, not just kids, but people understand is that mad is really a combination of sad and afraid. And so if you were thinking about the last time you were mad about something, my guess is if you tailor in a little bit further, you can really identify that you were sad and afraid. And so I'll just give an example of that. My daughter and I were here. It's the first week of summer and it's just the two of us at home these days. <laughs> and it's hard. We are going through a couple of life transitions. And so we have a lot of mad, sad and afraid just in our own lives right now. And, um, we're doing, trying to do a really good job of not letting that guide us, but it, we get overwhelmed by it sometimes. And just earlier when I got so mad that I was in that mom rage moment of like, just every, I'm going to take away everything. I'm taking away your phone. I'm taking away your stuff, all that, right? Because you're not listening to me. And then I walked away and I realized that really, I am so sad about the position we're in in life right now. Just the time of life we're in right now, we've had a lot of loss and I'm really sad about it. And I'm also really afraid of what that means for us in the future. What other changes are going to come our way And sometimes I just get overtaken by that sad and afraid and it has to come out as mad. And so what I did is I just went back into her room and I sat down with her for a minute and I just looked at her eye to eye and said, I'm sorry, my sad and afraid got out of control and it came out at you and that wasn't okay. 
And in that co-regulation space, we were able to connect, apologize, and move forward together for the afternoon. And I think that's what it looks like, is how do we get to that? That's that's where co-regulation and self-regulation meet. Yeah, I, I think that's really powerful and something that um, it it makes it a lot easier for you to go apologize uh, for quote unquote losing control, right? And right. makes it easier for you to say, hey, I, I wasn't my best here and mm-hmm. sorry about that, you know? And I think that's a really powerful, uh, powerful place to be, to, to give support to people who are, who are struggling to see that we, we don't think that we are perfect and we have all the right answers, but that we, we understand that sometimes we make mistakes too. I think that's really powerful. And just seeing those emotions as a sign and letting yourself feel them and let them move and pay attention to what they're telling you. And because it's not, I, I love what you said earlier about, you know, we can, we can choose our responses, but we can only choose our responses when we're aware of what's happening. If we don't know why we're mad, it's hard to choose the response to ignore it because it'll just keep popping back up for us. When you can identify it, then you can do something about it and move on. So it's not just about choosing response to the emotion. It's really choosing how to take control of your situation and work it out. Yeah. Well, and going back to this this training that I'm participating in, the uh, the idea is that there are when you the the research shows that when you boil it down, there are nine factors that prevent us from from having success or being successful or achieving our dreams or any of that kind of stuff. And uh, well, there's actually ten, but one is is pretty much all encompassing and it's, it's always accompanied by these other things. But what's really fascinating is that you can, you can easily point to what those things are that are challenging to us. And then you can see where it's coming from and what you need to do to improve it, to be better, to make it overcomable and to make it and to do something about it. And, and I just think that if we can, if we can teach these kind of skills to to everyone, we're going to be in a much much better place. And 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 they're not as complicated or as challenging as the the things that we experience in life make them feel. So, can you talk a little bit about that? That like everybody has challenging issues that they're facing with, uh, and we don't have to make it we don't have to make ours any bigger than anybody else's, but we often feel like we do. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, 
it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Oh gosh, I just had this conversation with a friend the other day and um, she was talking about how we, we compare our curses <laughs> and so many of us live in the curse rather than in the healing of things. So one of the things that I, I try to teach kids um, and really I'm going I'm to make a side note here about the way that I've developed my work is that it's a little um, it's a little subvertive here in that I develop work to teach pre-K through 12th grade students. However, it requires that educators go fairly deep into the work themselves before they teach it to kids. So really I'm teaching adults here as well. Um, I, I know that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that we talk about is that every, we, we identify what is the difference between stress and trauma and even the difference between stress and to toxic stress. Right. So all three of those are different things. There's stress, there's toxic stress, and there's trauma. And everyone will experience different levels of those things throughout their life at some point. The trauma is not so much the event. The trauma is the, it, the lasting effects that it might have on your nervous system based on the way you were supported through it. And so no one knows anyone's story. We, we're all aware of the ACEs, and, or, or most of us are, the adverse childhood experiences. And there's those 10 things that are listed. But we all know those 10 aren't the only bad things that happen in the world. And yet some of them on that list aren't traumatic for certain people. So one for me, one thing that's on the list of that is divorce. And I, I lived in a very strange family growing up. My parents were divorced when I was 10. I had no idea divorce was a bad thing until I was well into high school because my parents' divorce was super amicable. All of a sudden we just had two houses and my parents still went out for coffee together and everything was great. And so that wasn't, that wasn't an ace for me. And then I had a dog who died and no one talked to me about it. And that was really overwhelming and stressful. And so just helping kids and teachers understand that there's no, it's kind of like the pain scale. You know, when you go to the doctor and they ask you on a scale of zero to 10, what's your pain? That scale doesn't exist. What's a 10 for you might be a two for me. There's no way to quantify it. There's also no way to quantify stress. So you have to just accept that people had the experience they had and that it was as big for them as they believed it to have been. And it might not have been anything for you. And your story might seem way worse, but maybe they had no one to support them through the stress. So helping people understand the different levels of stress, toxic stress and trauma, and then the important factor of what kind of support did you get during those moments really helps to kind of level the playing field so that we can not compare and not live in our curses and rather just accept that bad things happen and that through relationship and healing processes, everybody's experience is different. Yeah, I'm really glad you, you brought that point up because I think it's so important for, well, let me rephrase this. 
I was going to go a different direction in my head, but then I started talking. I was like, wait a minute. I think this mm -hmm. is the better way to do it. So we, we all experience negative things in our lives. And to some people, those are traumatic events. It's, it doesn't do us any good to judge whether or not they're traumatic for someone else, because whatever that was for someone, they need connection and support is what I'm hearing you say. Yes. And so, you know, a, a great example of this is when a, a child's a stuffed animal or toy or something gets lost and they can't go to bed because it's impossible yes. to go to bed without this thing. And it's like, as an adult, as the parent, you don't care because you don't need that thing to go to bed. And so you can't understand it. But to your child, it is everything. But you know what else is really stressful? When your child is screaming and upset and you're exhausted and you just want them to go to bed. <laughs> and so the kid is like, I don't know why you're so upset at me because I need this thing really badly. And you're you're upset about it. But the adult's like, why are you upset about this stupid little thing? You don't need that. It's not a big deal. Just go to bed. And so you don't you don't see and perceive and accept where the other person is. And then that makes it even harder to connect and to become regulated again. We also do it to teenagers when things happen. Like um, I always think of yeah. the, the, an episode of Saved by the Bell where Kelly Kapowski gets a big pimple right before the big dance. And it's such a silly, silly example, but things like that are really stressful to teenagers, right? And we say things to them like, oh, none of this is going to matter in five years. And the truth is it probably won't. And yet in the moment it does, it does matter right now. And so how do we just kind of reframe those things that we say to kids about their lives not mattering in the moment? It does, it does matter. The, they don't grow up and enter the real world at 18. They are born into the real world. They're living here from the exactly. moment they're born until the end. And so everything that they're experiencing is real to them. Yeah. I, I won't go on a big tangent about this, but my whole entire life, people said, when you get into the next grade or the next part of your career or whatever, your behavior is not going to fly. And you know what, Katie? Like it's going to be way worse. It's yeah. My behavior flew no matter what situation I was in because people just recognize that that's who I was and they dealt with it or they didn't. And yeah. what I hate is when we try to say like, you're not going to be able to get away with that later because X, Y, or Z, when really we're just being cowards and pushing off consequences or or something else on the next person because we don't want to deal with it right then and there. Yes. Um, I think that's and, one of the big problems within trauma responsive schools is that we think that's the way it's supposed to be, is that we're getting rid of accountability to be permissive for kids' feelings. Right. Yep. And that is couldn't be further from the truth, right? Yeah. We yep. need to acknowledge that you're feeling some kind of way. And as a result, this behavior happened. And while that feeling is normal, that behavior is unacceptable. Right. And so what are we going to do to restore relationships? And that's yeah. where that accountability comes back into place. 
Yeah. One of the things I say in my trauma trainings that I often get a lot of pushback about is that it's not personal, that what these kids are doing to you is not personal, but every teacher feels like it is personal and they feel like, uh, like they need their pound of flesh from kids when they make a mistake or do something wrong. And like, they need to be, uh, the teachers need to be compensated somehow. And I've had many of my teachers, as I've been doing this work in my schools, say things like, you just, you don't want to have any consequences and you want kids to be able to do whatever they want. And while that is fundamentally untrue, what I'm looking for very clearly is the smallest possible thing that we can do to help the kid learn and change their behavior going forward. And if we can figure that out, then like if you look at a kid and they know they need to stop and do something different to me, that's good enough. <laughs> like <laughs> totally fine. Let's do that instead. Uh, if I, if I have to expel someone from the school because of what they did, and that's the smallest thing that I can do to get them to, to see where they were wrong and make a better choice then then I'm, I'm happy to do that, but I don't want to go to that extreme. Um, when I don't have to, I want to be able to say, okay, let me understand who this kid is, what's going on. And then what's the smallest possible thing that I can do to get them to be in a different place, to approach this differently, to deal with it differently, to make a better choice next time and focus on that little thing and do that little thing that will help them see what they need to do to change. Yeah. And oftentimes I'm not even kidding. This is so crazy. Oftentimes all they need is connection to someone at the school and then mm -hmm. they will make their own changes on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's <laughs> one amazing. Of my, one of my favorite things that I'm doing right now is a process called, I just call it transforming discipline. And I talk about how, our team, the resilience team has um, identified, we kind of created like these anatomies of discipline and punishment, right? So the anatomy of punishment is the threaten, isolate, and shame. And the anatomy of discipline is to promote safety, belonging, and dignity. And both are going to um, come into play when there's been some kind of offense. But um, like you said, punishment is to obtain a plan of pound of flesh and disciplines to teach and connect. So I have teachers go through a process where we identify like, what are your buttons in the classroom? What is that thing that kids do? And I try to get them to pick something small. Like for me, it's rustling papers. Like that sound of everybody shuffling their papers just drives me crazy. And so when that thing happens in your classroom, let's go back, mad, sad, or afraid. And if you said mad, what are you really sad or afraid about? And why? What is, the, what is the message you're getting about yourself when that behavior is happening in your classroom? And every time I do this, I've done this with hundreds of teachers, every time it comes down to the message they're getting is that I'm a bad teacher or I am not liked, I'm not good enough is what they're hearing in their head when the kid is chewing gum or is late to class or talks back. It's always about them. And so then we walk that through a process of the social discipline window. And when you think about behaviors that are happening in the classroom, what does it look like if you take something from a permissive standpoint? 
What does that same consequence look like if you're being neglectful? What does it look like if you're being punitive? And what does it look like when you're being restorative? And it's a fascinating um, staff development exercise to have all of these teachers identifying small little behaviors that just eat our time and realizing they're not about us. It's not, it's very rarely about us. Yeah, I, I'd say almost never. I I have a hard time thinking of clear examples where it really was about the person, except in situations where the the person went so far that they that that it then became the mission of that kid to disrupt the teacher. Like for example, when I was in fourth grade and I really did not like my teacher, I was difficult just to spite him and caused him trouble just to spite him. But that was because the relationship had deteriorated to such a point that I felt like there was no no way to repair it. And so I was just going to, you know, do whatever I could to make his life miserable because I felt like that's what he was doing to me. And obviously not a good idea. Uh, but I think that guy was a was a terrible teacher. And I he was part of the reason why I became a teacher to make sure that kids would never experience that kind of thing with me because I just thought he was, he was so awful. Now that was my perception of, of disconnection, seeking connection, but in ways that are unhealthy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on the discipline versus punishment thing, uh, Rebecca Lewis Pankratz, Pankratz and I talked about that. Uh, in episode 18 of this podcast. So if you go to resilientschools.com slash 18, if you haven't heard that one, we go into a lot more discussion about that. And it was a, a, a great conversation, definitely. And she's also from SDAC, so you can uh, uh, you can hear more of this similar kind of stuff. So um, uh, will you talk to us about the uh, curriculum that you do? You mentioned it before, but I want to get into a little bit more about that and and tell us yeah. a little bit about that and, and how we can get a hold of that. So building neuroresilience is uh, really where I took all of the ideas about the brain and um, how we operate under stress. And I put it into a, a community circle format. So the way it works is it's um, divided into four different grade bands. So there's pre-K two, three, five, six, eight, and then nine, 12. And it's, the format is 15, 15 to 18 community circles that a classroom or a small group of people can do. And it just introduces the six core lessons, introduce the six centers of the brain that are prominent during stressful times. So that would be your prefrontal cortex, your cingulate, your insula, amygdala, hippocampus, and your brainstem. And it talks about how do those operate when they are in prime condition and how do they operate under stress? And then what are some strategies that would be developmentally appropriate for a kiddo to use when they are feeling stressed? It also goes into some executive function skills. Uh, it goes into helping um, 9 through 12th graders develop uh, some agency and pathways around future goal setting. Um, it talks about the window of tolerance and does a little bit of introducing things like enlightened witnesses and favorite places. If you've, if you've heard any of them as that resilience teams, peaceful schools and families framework, those pieces would come from there. 
The ultimate goal is for pre-K through fifth grade students to develop an emotional first aid plan. So they go through this curriculum with their teacher and the whole time they're collecting strategies and tools that they can use whenever they're feeling dysregulated. And that emotional first aid plan travels with them from class to class so that if they're in PE and they need to use a grounding strategy, that teacher has quick access to know what strategy does that kid prefer and can help them use it. In sixth through 12th grade, uh, students end up completing a capstone project where they create something that shows what they've learned about themselves and how they operate under stress. And what's been beautiful about those is we use this in some of our alternative learning settings. And so we have students who are actually taking this as an independent study course, and they're doing it um, through Canva or Edmentum on the computer. And we interact with them back and forth through there. And then they present their capstone courses, their capstone projects. And we have seen the most beautiful reflections from some kids who have been considered to be the toughest or unsavable in our schools. And they are realizing that there's nothing wrong with them and that they are absolutely capable of growth. And so that's kind of how the curriculum set up. The other thing that it includes that is super exciting for me is uh, we worked with Stop It Solutions and their app Help Me. And in that, what we did was we created a set of videos. And so one of my colleagues, Carmen Zeisler, and I went out and we talked to kids and we asked them about stresses that they have and things that are happening to them in their lives. And we turned it into a little mini lesson about the brain and what part of their brain might be over or underactive during that type of stress. And then we cartoonized the kids and had them record um, their story and did a little bit of a teaching moment for them. And those are actually accessible on the Help Me app through Stop It Solutions so that people can just access little in the minute brain lessons when they need them. Um, we have everything on there from a kiddo who, um, is just frustrated because he has too much homework during the day and he can't keep on top of all of it. And then another who has a recollection of um, being in a store that was being robbed at um, gunpoint when he heard a car backfiring in his neighborhood. That sound of the car backfiring brought back that memory and he didn't know how to calm down. So just really cool examples of kids sharing that this stuff really happens to them. And every one of them ended their story with something along the lines of what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And when I could say nothing's wrong with you, this part of your brain was doing something funny. They all just breathe a sigh of relief. And so it's, yeah. it's magical. It's one of those things that you sit at your desk and you write and you think, oh, these are some good lessons. I would like to teach these in a classroom. And then you start seeing the impact that they're having on kids and teachers and it is, it's just one of those moments where, you know, you, you were able to pull the right resources together to get them into the hands of teachers for a really, really awesome outcome. Yeah. Very cool. So if people want to take that course, uh, there's a link in the show notes at resilientschools.com slash 22, which is this episode where people can, uh, can go check that out. Um, and the building neuro resilience is the course. Uh, at online.sdac.org, um, but go to go to the website. There's a direct link to it, and you can you can get it right away. And I 
I think these kinds of things are are powerful uh, for for teachers to do individually, but then become much more powerful when the whole school gets involved in it and and talks together about these things instead of just you know one lone person who's who's you know basically doing their own thing, uh, which um, you know it it just helps to have a team around you. Um, in close. In closing today, uh, Katie, how can people get in touch with you and learn more from you? Yeah, so uh, one of the best places is just our, our website has some contact information, tells a little bit more about what the resilience team does. And so that's uh, asdac.org. So on Facebook, you can find me at facebook.com uh, slash katie.prez.311. Um, you can find me there. And I like to connect with teachers and share a lot of resources in that space. And then we have our own podcast series, um, Resilience Conversations, where we share a lot more about the work that we're doing out into the world. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you being part of Resilient Schools. And thanks for your work and dedication to this topic. Thanks. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things. You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.